1: They say don't talk politics at the holiday dinner table, but in a year like this, how can you not? The lead starts right now. The Justice Department today challenging the need for a special master. Does a third party really need to review the documents taken from Mar-a-Lago? That is the question today, as a close Trump ally appears before a grand jury. Plus, The takedown of a Colorado nightclub shooting suspect, a decorated army veteran, an active duty Navy sailor, and a woman using her heels likely saved lives. And on this busiest day for Thanksgiving air travel, how airlines are trying to keep up with the demand and save you from air travel misery. Welcome to the lead. I'm Brianna Keeler, in for Jake Tapper. A legal storm swirling around former President Donald Trump. Federal prosecutors arguing in court today that a special master is not needed to review the materials seized by the FBI from Trump's Mar-a-Lago resort. A move that, if granted, would supercharge the pace at which the newly appointed special counsel could review the 22,000 pages of documents recovered. Prosecutors are looking to determine whether Trump committed obstruction of justice, mishandled government records, or violated the Espionage Act. And in Georgia today, one of Trump's closest allies, Republican Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, was forced to appear before the Fulton County grand jury investigating efforts to overturn the 2020 election. Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger has said that Graham called him in 2020 and suggested he discard some ballots. Plus, A big loss today for Trump at the Supreme Court. The justices cleared the way for the release of Trump's tax returns to the Democratic-led House Committee. And in New York, a judge setting a trial date of October 2023 for the state's $250 million lawsuit against Trump, his family and the Trump organization. The trial would begin just a few months before the 2024 primary season. And we start our coverage now with CNN's Paula Reed, who is at the federal courthouse in Atlanta. So Paula, if a judge rules in favor of prosecutors and removes the special master, how would that change the special counsel's investigation?
2: Well, that would be a big win for the newly appointed special counsel, Jack Smith, as it would help him move this investigation along a little bit faster. And speed and time, those are key issues here. You heard the attorney general on Friday assure people that appointing a special counsel was not going to slow this down. There are concerns about how long these investigations will extend into the 2024 presidential cycle. And if they can get this special master removed, that would help them move along a little, a little more quickly. It was interesting, though, today, even though this was a, a panel of three Republican appointed judges, two even appointed by former President Trump. The arguments did not appear to go very well for Trump attorneys. Now, the judges asked, for example, they asked why the special master was set up when the search has never been declared to be unlawful. They also expressed concerns about whether if a former president can get this kind of intervention to slow down an investigation if all criminal defendants are going to try to get this. There was even a moment where a judge corrected one of the former president's attorneys when he referred to what happened at Mar-a-Lago as a raid. Now, we did not get a decision today, but this has enormous consequences for this probe.
1: And, and Trump submitted a new filing today, Paula, asking for an unredacted version of that affidavit that the FBI used to search Mar-a-Lago. Is this going anywhere? It's
2: possible. That will first go before a judge who has been very deferential to the former president, but any decision there is likely to be appealed. The Justice Department says it does not want this to be shared because they want to protect the witnesses and the evidence that they've collected in this investigation.
1: All right. Paula Reed, live for us in Atlanta. Thank you so much. Senator Lindsey Graham testifying today before the grand jury in Fulton County, Georgia, amid its ongoing investigation into efforts by former president and allies to overturn the 2020 election The testimony coming after Graham for months tried to avoid showing up, taking that fight all the way to the Supreme Court. CNN's Sarah Murray is following this case for us. So, Sarah, what does the grand jury want to know from Senator Graham?
3: Well, what they really want to know were about his interactions with the Trump campaign around the 2020 election and about outreach he made to Georgia officials, including this call with Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. Raffensperger comes away from that call thinking Graham asked him to toss ballots. Graham has denied that. Now, as you pointed out, this has been a long time coming. Lindsey Graham really did not want to appear before that grand jury today. You know, essentially what the courts did is they said, if you feel there are questions related to your legislative activity, you can challenge those. But if we're talking about interaction, coordination with the Trump campaign, trying to cajole election officials, that is not part of legislative activity. And Graham's office put out a statement after his appearance saying he was there for just over two hours. He felt he was treated with respect and they said he answered all of the questions. That's int- he answered all of the questions. So what they say? Interesting there. So earlier this afternoon, the
1: Supreme Court actually cleared the way for the release of Trump's
3: tax returns to the House Ways and Means Committee. What do we know about this? That's right. I mean, this has been a fight that is years in the making. It was 2019 when the committee first started trying to seek Donald Trump's tax returns, and it is just today that the Supreme Court said, we are not going to stand in the way of this, essentially, as you said, paving the way for these uh, tax documents to be handed over to the House Ways and Committee, which right now is run by Democrats. But they are going to have a short time frame to pour over these returns. Of course, as we all know, the House changes hands in January.
1: Yes, time is of the essence here. Sarah Marie, thank you so much. And I'd like to bring in outgoing Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson now to discuss a little bit more about this and some other topics. I I do want to ask you, uh, Governor, about the special counsel that's now overseeing these DOJ investigations involving the former president. I know you're not a fan of this special counsel in part because it delays things. Do you think, though, that it makes Trump vulnerable as a candidate?
4: Well, all of the reporting that you just did on the myriad lawsuits and criminal investigations uh, is problematic. It's dizzying uh, for the public to see uh, this kind of chaos uh, surrounding a candidate for president he's already announced. So to me, it's very problematic and just is reflective of all of the challenges that go with a Trump candidacy. Uh, You mentioned the uh, special master and, you know, for Whatever. That's my concern is that this will delay uh, the proceedings and the ultimate conclusion on this investigation. And that's been the history of it. Uh, these are complex matters. You've had the Department of Justice engaged in it. And you, we don't want this. It's not good for the public. It's not good for anyone uh, to see this all go into 2024 and be in the middle of, uh, of, of a presidential campaign. That's my concern. It's obviously uh, something that's done, uh, and uh, the special prosecutor, I'm sure, will try to move things quickly, but there's a lot of mountains to move, and the likelihood is that it's going to take some time for them to get the uh, final conclusion.
1: We're awaiting this runoff race in Georgia between Senator Raphael Warnock and his challenger, Herschel Walker, and you and I had actually spoke uh, just ahead of Election Day, and I asked you whether you believed Herschel Walker's denials that he paid for his former girlfriend's abortion. And you told me this.
4: I take uh, what he says at uh, face value and, and uh, the people are gonna have to judge that. But uh, I think it's uh, too important of a race uh, simply to uh, take what uh, happened in the past and say uh, that's going to define his future. I give him the benefit of the doubt.
1: Do you still take him at face value? Do you still give him the benefit of the doubt?
4: Well, my comment's exactly the same as I uh, articulated on uh, the interview that we had. Uh, and uh, obviously the uh, voters uh, there in Georgia uh, were a split decision on it. Uh, he's running against an incumbent. Uh, he got it into a runoff. We'll see what happens in the next 30 days. And to a large extent, uh, the election there is about who's going to represent Georgia, but it's also about uh, the national direction and uh, whether we're going to have more or less support for Biden's uh, agenda in the last two years. So all of those are factors that have to be weighed in the final decision of the voters.
1: I do want to ask you, in light of this shooting at the LGBTQ plus nightclub in Colorado Springs, do you think that members of your party need to tone down some of their transphobic language. We've heard some people, some elected officials, you know, talking about pedophilia, grooming, demonizing trans people.
4: Well, in all of our society, we need to tone down harsh rhetoric that causes others to hate. Uh, That's not what our society should be about. Uh, and uh, that is horrific, what happened uh, in that nightclub. Uh, our hearts go out there as it should. And hopefully it will cause us all to be more reflective about what we say, how we say it, and and how we might stigmatize certain elements of our population, which is not good.
1: But specifically, uh, while most people can, handle I, can that- I ask you, Governor, specifically uh, just about those kinds of comments that I was highlighting? Because we are talking specifically about uh, a situation here where the suspect is facing hate crime charges. Uh, specifically, is there room, in your belief, for that kind of language in the Republican Party?
4: You mean harsh language in reference to uh, the trans community? Yes. Uh, no, I th- no, I think that we need to show compassion for all elements. There is a debate as to, and we had this in Arkansas, as to uh, what you do with uh, uh, trans children uh, that are uh, struggling with gender identity and how you handle the medications and things like that. Those are fair points of discussion uh, in the policy arena, but you don't have to translate that into uh, hate or harshness. That's again stigmatizes. So, to me, it's very important that whether you're Republican or Democrat, and I know you're talking about Republicans, that uh, we use rhetoric and words that try to bring people together and not to divide us. And and it, it's true whether you're talking about uh, race or whether you're talking about uh, you know sexual uh, identity, uh, you don't want to say things that's going to cause others to hate more and they might respond with violence. That is not what we need. We need to suppress that every chance we get.
1: Governor Hutchinson, it's always a pleasure having you on. Thank you so much for your time today.
4: Thank you. Good to be with you.
1: So I had the big announcement today on student loans as President Biden tries to cancel debt for millions of Americans and as the Thanksgiving holiday travel rush gets going, the rather perplexing find when a suitcase went through an x-ray unit at JFK. Back now with our politics lead. And just in, President Biden has extended the pause on federal student loan payments originally scheduled to pick back up in January. CNN's Arlette Sines is joining us now. So, Arlette, this announcement comes as the administration student loan relief forgiveness program, of course, is tied up in court.
5: Yeah, Brianna, and that is a large reason why President Biden said he decided to move forward with extending the pause on federal student loan payments. The president in a video this evening saying that he believed it would be unfair to those who qualify for the relief program to have to start those repayments as his uh, relief program remains tied up in the courts. Now, the Department of Education announced that they would be extending this pause until June 30th or until there's a decision from the Supreme Court, but this comes as the administration has appealed, has gone to the Supreme Court to ask them to allow their program to be implemented while these court challenges continue to take place. About 26 million people have applied for the president's student loan relief program and 16 million of those applications have been approved. But the Department of Education is not able to discharge any of that due to these legal challenges that are underway. But this really comes as so many Americans have been facing questions about whether these student loan repayments would be resuming and for now at least they have an answer.
1: You're joining us from sort of a beautiful twilight scene there on Nantucket in Massachusetts ahead of uh, Biden and his family heading there for their Thanksgiving uh, holiday. I know it's going to be hard for the Biden family to avoid politics at the dinner table especially this year I would think.
5: Yeah, you know, the Biden family has been coming here to Nantucket for decades and they have had so many important family conversations when it comes to the president's political aspirations here over Thanksgiving and also over the holidays. And that is something that is expected to continue over the course of the next few weeks. And a bit earlier today, Vice President Kamala Harris talked about the prospect of a 2024 run. As the president said, he intends to run, and um, if he does, I will be running with him. And I have no doubt about the strength of the work that we have done over these past two years. And the president has said he expects to make a decision about a 2024 run early next year. And if you've been following Biden for a long time, you know that it's not going to come down to just one conversation at the Thanksgiving table this coming week.
1: No, certainly is not. Arlette, thank you so much for that report from Mm -hmm. Nantucket. We appreciate it. So how will the 2024 election play out? Well, if we've learned anything, it's that we really have no idea. But maybe the past few elections could provide some clues. In 2016, Trump surprised political pundits and pulled off wins in three previously blue Rust Belt states, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. In 2018, Democrats gained momentum in key governor's races, and then Democrats solidified their recovery in 2020, which brings us to the 2022 midterms. In the House, of course, Republicans narrowly won the majority. In the Senate, Democrats held on to the majority, but Republicans retained seats in swing states that are trending more red, like Florida and Ohio. So now to the 2024 outlook. I want to bring in CNN senior political analyst Ron Brownstein. Ron, you have a really fascinating analysis that's out today, and it focuses on just four states that could decide yeah. 2024. Which ones are they?
6: Well, you know, the general trend, Brianna, as you're noting, is that the number of real swing states that are truly up for grabs between both sides in a presidential race has been steadily shrinking uh, since 2000. I mean, from 2016 to 2020, there were five states that switched from Trump in 2016 to Biden in 2020 and made him president. And three of those, I think, are still very much up for grabs after the 2022 uh, results. And those include Wisconsin, Arizona and Georgia. Um, Michigan and Pennsylvania also moved from 2016 to 2020. But when you look at the magnitude of the Democratic wins in those states this year, even at a point where three quarters of the voters there were saying the economy was in bad shape, uh, that suggests it's going to be very difficult, I think, for a Republican, particularly one who wants to restrict access to abortion in 2024. So you've got the three that moved, Arizona, Georgia and and Wisconsin. And then you have Nevada, which is Uh, probably the only state that voted the same way in 16 and 20 that looks like it is truly within reach for both sides in 2024. It's split between a Republican governor narrowly winning and then the Democratic senator winning by the narrowest possible margin. It is possible that those four states Nevada, Arizona, Georgia in the Sun Belt, Wisconsin uh, in the industrial Midwest may be the only ones that are truly jump balls at the start of the 2024 election.
1: And, you, you know, look, we say every vote counts, but you drive home yeah. that some are counting more than others because you write the 2024 presidential election could rest on, quote, a minuscule number of people living in the tiny patches of contested political ground white-collar suburbs of Atlanta and Phoenix, working-class Latino neighborhoods in and around Las Vegas and the mid-sized communities of the so-called Bow counties in Wisconsin. That's kind of the details of what you were just telling us about the states there. Is there any historical precedent for so few Americans potentially deciding the outcome of the election?
6: Not in recent history. I mean, you go back to the 20th, basically 80% of the states, 40 of the 50 states have voted the same way in at least the past four consecutive presidential uh, elections. That is the highest level of continuity we've had since at least the turn of the 20th century. Even when Franklin Roosevelt won four straight elections from 1932 through 1944, only about two-thirds of the states voted the same way. And as we said, of the 10 that have flipped at any point since 2008, most of those are, uh, at least half of those are now securely uh, in one side or the other, which leaves us with just a tiny number of states uh, that are themselves divided almost exactly in half between the parties. And you think, I, I keep thinking like the the cat in the hat or something about, you know, kind of a structure where you're like standing on a beach ball, balancing a goldfish bowl on an umbrella. It's a tiny number of states for a nation of 330 million people. And it's a tiny number of people within those states that basically get to decide the nation's direction at any given moment.
1: Yeah, it's really amazing. And just quickly, I have Pennsylvania question for you, of course, because this is Jake Tapper's show. It was... Huge for Trump in 2016. Has it lost its swing, I guess, Commonwealth status?
6: I think it has moved toward the Democrats clearly since then, particularly with abortion uh, as an issue. One thing we saw very clearly, a dramatic pattern in this election in the states, the red states that have actually moved to restrict abortion. There really wasn't much of a backlash at all in places like Florida, Tennessee, uh, and Texas. But in the states where it's legal, there's a lot of resistance to any agenda that would restrict it. And Pennsylvania, Michigan, even Wisconsin, fall clearly under that umbrella.
1: All right, Ron, always great to have your analysis. Thank you so much.
6: Thanks for having me. Happy holiday.
1: Happy holiday to you as well. Next, the heroic actions of people who just happened to be at that Colorado nightclub when a gunman opened fire. In the National lead, the suspect in the Colorado shooting has been released from the hospital and is now in police custody. This comes after he allegedly shot and killed five people and injured 17 others inside an LGBTQ plus club. CNN's Nick Watt is in Colorado Springs, where one of the heroes who helped subdue the shooter is sharing his story.
7: I told him while I was eating I said, I'm going to kill you, man, because you tried to kill my friends. My family
8: was in there. Three tours in Iraq, one in (laughs) Afghanistan, prepared Army vet Rich Fierro for a night out back home. I
7: was done doing this stuff.
8: He had a helper. I told
7: him, push the AR, get the AR away from him. The kid pushed the AR. I, I, I don't know what his name was.
8: Now we do. Information systems technician, petty officer, second class, Thomas James. Injured, according to the Navy. James is currently in stable condition and we remain hopeful he will make a full recovery. Another patron took over, kicking the gunman in the head with her heels identified by a survivor as a trans woman. We don't know her name. Fiero's daughter was hurt. Her boyfriend, Raymond Vance, killed.
7: I still feel bad that there's five people... (laughs) There's five people that didn't come home. And this guy... This guy... If they breach, I'm a... Blow it to holy hell.
8: Apparently, this is the suspect. Summer of last year, surrounded after his mum told authorities he threatened her with a bomb. Big talk. So, uh, go ahead and come on in, boys. Let's f- see it! Yeah. He gave himself up to deputies, hands raised, and a year and change later, allegedly murdered five defenceless people here at Club Q. Kelly. Kelly. Daniel. Daniel.
9: Ashley. Ashley. Raymond. Raymond. Derek.
8: Derek. Today, Derek Rump's friend remembered him and fellow bartender, Daniel Aston.
5: Derek and Daniel were the light and the heart of Club Q. It's a facility that gave us a safe space to be who we are all the time. And Derek and Daniel especially were always the
8: glue. I hate to name the suspect, but maybe it's relevant because in 2016, just before he turned 16, court records show he changed his name. Nicholas F. Brink became Anderson L. Aldrich. Unclear why, but he was the subject of online bullying on a parody website in 2015. Back to a hero. This morning, thanks.
0: Richard, thank you. You you were a big part of um, saving Many more lives been stopping this from being worse than it already was. Um, we applaud you, um, and I, I can't wait to give you a big hug.
8: And as you mentioned, Brianna, the suspect now out of the hospital and in custody. Charges are expected to follow soon. And the police chief here in Colorado Springs. He says that, meanwhile, investigators are writing warrants. They're looking at technology, including computers. They're conducting interviews, all to try to nail down the motive. What happened here certainly looks like hate, but prosecutors and investigators want and need to prove that. Brianna.
1: All right, Nick Watt, live for us in Colorado Springs. Thank you. Next, what CNN just heard from police investigating the killings of four college students in Idaho, plus what an FBI profiler makes of the case. And we are back now with our national lead. We're hearing from police nine days after four University of Idaho students were brutally stabbed. So far, investigators have only given incremental updates. Last night, Moscow police confirmed they found a dog at the house where the killings took place, seen here in one of the roommate's TikTok videos. They say the dog was unharmed and is now with a, quote, responsible party. CNN's Natasha Chen is in Moscow with the very latest here. Natasha, I know you spoke with police today. What did they tell you?
10: Brianna, they're telling me they're definitely making progress, and that was in answer to my question of whether they're any closer at all to finding out who did this. Um, Granted, a lot of people have been frustrated with the information that's come out of the police department, with some people in the neighborhood telling our colleagues last week that they were not reassured at all uh, by the information they're getting. At the same time, we're being told by the public information officer here they are trying very hard to vet every piece of information and forming a complete picture before divulging more information. Uh, And they are also trying to dispel rumors that have been popping up uh, among the public as well. Now, there have been over 90 people interviewed in this process so far. Uh, They have been following 700 leads. And today we also learned that ever since uh, the FBI set up a portal online for people to submit any surveillance videos they might have, they've been getting a lot of submissions. So they're going through all of those videos right now. It's just taking some time because those videos are very large files. I also asked about why there was the initial comment uh, from the police department about the threat level to the community. Uh, After a couple of days after the incident, they did say they couldn't definitively say there was no threat to the public. And what we're being told is that, uh, you know, because the suspect is still out there, of course, there is still a possible threat. So people need to be aware of that. And hopefully we'll learn more when they hold a press conference on Wednesday, tomorrow at 1 p.m. local time, Brian. All right, we'll be waiting for
1: that with you. Natasha Chen in Moscow, Idaho. Thank you. I do want to bring in now Mary Ellen O'Toole. She's a forensic science professor at George Mason University, and she worked as a senior profiler at the FBI. Uh, Mary Ellen, this is a tough case. We just don't know that much. And it seems like police are struggling to get information. If you had to mock up a profile on a potential suspect knowing what you do, what would it look like?
0: Well, I'd focus on a couple of things, and and one of them is that going into the house that night with multiple people there sleeping was very high risk for the offender, and he was able to stealthily commit four murders. That tells me the offender has a background or history of being in other people's homes. The other thing that I think is really important is this offender did not go in there to scare these young people, nor did he go in there just to hurt them. He went in there to kill them. And that's what makes somebody like this quite quite dangerous. Um, and then finally, I would say this is a very unusual kind of violence. We call it instrumental violence. It's not your typical, you hit me in the nose and I hit you back in the nose. This is a specific violence that's characterized by predatory behavior. It's very cold-blooded, and there's no guilt or remorse after the offender left that residence. That kind of behavior is more consistent with somebody Who is psychopathic and that's a personality disorder hallmarked with a a profound lack of of guilt or remorse for anything that they do when these individuals are out of prison for six months or more if they've served time um they they cannot continue to be pro-social so they will break the law i would be looking at people that have burglary in their uh, backgrounds as well as people that have recently got out of prison that have the same kind of features in their background because this is
1: really quite unique. Is there anything, Mary Ellen, that would lead you to believe the perpetrator knew the victims? I think Mary Ellen, can you hear me? I think we might be having Can you hear me, Mary Ellen? I can hear you now. Go okay, ahead, great. Sir. I was I was asking Is there anything that would lead you to believe the perpetrator knew the victims?
0: He could have, he or she could have have known the, the victims, but the word targeted has to be understood I think very carefully. This could have been somebody that ran into the victims, knew them for a while and targeted them some days or weeks ago. But on the same part of the continuum, this could have been someone that ran into them the day before the homicides, and they could still have been targeted. So targeted is a dimensional concept, but I would say this. There's probably more, uh, more likely than not that only one of the victims was truly targeted, and that will be evidenced by the amount of damage to the victim or what, the, what happened to the victim in that house. So I doubt that all four were targeted. It's more likely that one, possibly two, were the targets of this offender's um,
1: actions that night. The, The coroner said multiple victims here had defensive wounds. Would you expect the killer to have left some DNA evidence?
0: There is so much DNA evidence that this offender likely left at that crime scene. When you stab somebody that many times, blood is slippery, and your hand slides down over the blade, so it's very likely that he cut himself. But in addition to the DNA evidence, he's likely left um, hairs, fibers, footprints. So this will be a forensic case.
1: Mary Ellen O'Toole, thank you so much for your insights here, we appreciate it. Thank you. So next, the supply shortage hitting just as the influenza cases hit elevated levels so early in the season. What is behind a lack of antiviral medication? And it was a summer of travel chaos with tens of thousands of flight cancellations. But what about now as we begin the busy holiday travel season, why things are actually looking up next? In the health lead, the FDA is urging manufacturers to increase supplies of antiviral medication. This year's flu season is hitting so early and so hard, many pharmacists nationwide say they can't keep these prescriptions on the shelf. The shortage has left many parents scrambling with younger children among groups at higher risk. I want to bring in CNN's Dr. Tara Narula. Dr. Narula, tell us what is behind this shortage.
9: Well, Brianna, as you said, it's really a demand issue. We're seeing this unprecedented time where we have RSV, COVID, and the flu surging, the C D C reporting very high levels or high levels of respiratory virus in half or more than half of states in this country. So you know, pharmaceutical companies really didn't anticipate this when they were filling their orders many months ago. And so here we are in a situation where we need several of these medications for upper respiratory illness. So we're talking about Tamiflu, which is an antiviral medication that's used to treat the flu in the sense that it reduces symptoms, reduces the length of Uh, your course with the flu virus and potentially decreases complications. We're also talking about antibiotics, common antibiotics like amoxicillin or augmentin, which are used to treat strep throat, ear infections, and pneumonia. And then finally, albuterol, uh, which is used in inhalers for individuals of asthma or reactive airway disease. Now, they are ramping up production, so hopefully we will see some of this uh, shortage, this uh, concern ease over the next couple of months, and also as hopefully respiratory viruses decline line. But I think the big picture message is is parents really don't need to worry. I don't want people to be afraid by hearing this. I think there is always an option, um, which is kind of one key message here.
1: If a parent does go to a pharmacy and the prescription that their child has been prescribed, if it's not there, what can they do?
9: So first of all, pharmacists, for example, are getting guidance from the FDA for how to take amoxicillin in a pill form and put it in a liquid form. Um, also, there are other formulations that they may be able to give. There are other types of classes of antibiotics that we can give in place of amoxicillin many times. It may not be exactly the same. It may be broader spectrum, which is not always ideal, have different side effects. Profile or be more costly, but there is an option and parents may have to drive farther and you know Call other pharmacies to be able to find what they need And then finally the point we've been trying to make is parents should definitely get their kids tested We know that a very high percentage of antibiotics are given out inappropriately when the actual patient or child does not have a bacterial infection so we can test for RSV and COVID and the flu And that will help as well in a time right now where we are seeing these shortages. All
1: right. All important information. Dr. Narula. thank you so much. Thank you. Before retiring next month, Dr. Anthony Fauci made what's likely his last public appearance at the White House today. He was there to stress the importance of COVID vaccines as more people gather indoors in these colder months. Fauci, who advised every U.S. president since Ronald Reagan and became a revered and controversial figure during the pandemic, addressed his legacy after 38 years heading the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases.
8: Every
7: day for all of those years, I've given it everything that I have and I've never left anything on the field. So if they want to remember me, whether they judge rightly or wrongly what I've done, I gave it all I got for many decades.
1: Fauci's next public appearance very well may be on Capitol Hill because Fauci said today if there are any oversight hearings led by the incoming Republican majority, he plans to fully cooperate and testify. Well, you got to give TSA credit for creativity on this next one, but don't try this one yourself for sure. TSA's tweet today here, a historic find at JFK International Airport in New York. This catch... Had our baggage screening officers saying, come on, meow, take a closer look. You see it, right? That orange fur, that's a cat. Somehow the animal made it all the way to an x-ray unit. TSA says a traveler packed it on purpose. It belonged to someone else in his household. This last one is courtesy TSA, again, not me, quote, the cat's out of the bag and safely back home, thankfully. And we're back with our national lead on what the FAA says is the busiest day of the Thanksgiving holiday period. 48,000 flights scheduled today. Holiday travelers experiencing few cancellations. A far cry from this summer when daily cancellations sometimes climb into the thousands. As CNN's Pete Montine reports, that's thanks to an airline hiring boom.
7: Airlines have been preparing for the rush at airports with a rush all their own hiring thousands of new workers from the front desk to the flight deck. 24-year-old Ellie Gall is about to follow in her dad's footsteps as a new commercial pilot.
0: This is probably... One of the best times in history to become a pilot.
7: Ellie is joining Piedmont Airlines, which operates thousands of regional flights for American airlines.
0: At its Charlotte
7: training center, 400 new pilots have been trained here since June. We have
4: real ambitions to grow the airline, essentially double the size of the airline.
7: Seasoned pilots are also in demand. Piedmont just announced a $100,000 signing bonus for new captains.
4: Uh, Opportunities have never been better.
7: New industry numbers show staffing at the major airlines has now exceeded pre-pandemic levels. The hiring blitz comes after airlines struggled this summer, canceling 55,000 flights due in part to staffing shortages. But hiring is happening beyond just pilots. American Airlines says it has hired 12,000 employees this year company-wide. Southwest Airlines says it has hired more than 15,000. And at United Airlines, 2,000 new customer service representatives are helping passengers in new ways.
0: Stubby speaking, to help
7: you? Called Agent On Demand. You scan a QR code for a video call. Agents can now connect with a stranded passenger at O'Hare when they're not busy at another airport like Dulles.
0: I think this is going to be a great help, especially now that we're having snow everywhere. We want to be there for our customers, support them, make it easy, and just make them feel good about the trip and, and take off some of the
2: stress.
7: Airlines insist they now have the right people in the right places. Now the pressure is on them to perform. Are you worried at all? I'm worried about the weather. I always worry about the weather because that's the number one thing that can ruin a flight. I think we're flexible enough now that if there are cancellations or delays, we will be ready to try to get people to where they want to go. The big question now is will all this hiring pay off? So far, things have been pretty smooth at airports across the country and here at Reagan National Airport, which is pretty good considering the fact that so many people are traveling. The TSA has been averaging about 2.3 million people screened at airports nationwide for the last few days, but the busiest days are still ahead, Brianna. The TSA anticipates 2.5 million people at airports tomorrow. That could be the highest number we have seen since COVID hit. Brianna?
1: Wow, that is something. Pete Munteen. thank you. (laughs) We have some very sad news to share. John Brown Jr., the former governor of Kentucky, has died. He was also the father of our dear friend and colleague, Pamela Brown. And she tweeted today, quote, my dad not only dreamed the impossible dream, he lived it until the very end. We are heartbroken by his passing, but find comfort in what he wrote in one of his final days, I have never been so happy. John Brown built the fast food giant Kentucky Fried Chicken into a national brand. He went on to serve as the state's governor from 1979 to 1983, and he leaves behind two sons, three daughters, and 12 grandchildren. John Brown was 88 years old. May his memory be a blessing. Our coverage continues here in a moment.
6: I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta